Let's begin with prayer. Dearest God, you are the source of life and light, and you have included us in your divine life by mercy and grace through your Son, our Lord. We ask that you would make us ever mindful of that uh, divine life in which we participate, that you would uh, lift our hearts and spirits by the promises that you give of everlasting life. In the name of Jesus, amen. So, um, the uh, remarks in my, uh, in my prayer about life, uh, divine life, and us being participants in God's life is an underlying motif of today's lesson and really the last couple. So when I've been talking, probably all of them, but uh, the, when we talked about healing, and uh, which I'll quickly wrap today with that and I will talk about uh, uh, demons and possession and uh, deliverance in the, in the book of Acts with some references to the Gospels, I'm sure. So when we think of those things, and um, maybe next week I will start to also talk about um, um, resurrection or revivification of the dead raising the dead, which uh, ultimately there's the, on the last day, but even in the Gospels, of course, you know, Jesus raises several people, and even in the book of Acts, the apostles do as well. So all those things are meant to be uh, tied together by the underlying theme that God is life. And what does it mean? Uh, you know, let's go back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. God said that if people ate the fruit, if Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, that they would die. And, um, and, and that's what happened. And now that doesn't mean they immediately physically passed away, right? They, they continued to walk the earth for many, many years, having children and existing. But death, the curse of death, had already been laid on them, and there was a spiritual death that occurred, which was always within them, and which they passed on to all their descendants, including us, this, this uh, deathness. And it is um, to, so when, when they sinned, God, as you know, expelled them from Eden so that they would no longer be able to, uh, to partake of the tree of life. Now, there were two trees in two particular spiritual trees in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge, good and evil, from which they are pro prohibited, and the tree of life, not the same. But, uh, to be, but it says that to, so that they would no longer be able to consume the tree of life, they were being expelled from the garden. So that is their death, that's their death sentence, to be expelled from Eden and uh, cursed with death and no longer being able to partake, participate in the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is God himself, is Jesus Christ. Is, is, um, th there is no, I mean, I, I, there was a tree, but it's not a natural tree. A natural tree gives you a kind of life, but, um, but not that kind of life. So the tree of life is, of course, God himself, uh, Jesus, with whom, through whom, we part back to my theme, through whom we participate in the very life of God. Okay? 
So keep all that in mind. Now, when I was um, last week talking about healing, I uh, was mostly looking at Acts chapter 3. And if you want to look at that, we, you know, I will, I'm just going to dip my toe there and not stay very long because we're going to go somewhere else. Because um, I, I think I exhausted most of what I wanted to say in Acts 3. And, and, and of course, like I said, this is not the only healing miracle in the, in the book of Acts. But for the sake of time, we chose one to focus on. Um, Acts 3.10, I just return to that for a moment. And, um, well, uh, I mean, let me go, let me seven through, let me say, talk about seven through ten. Acts three, seven through ten. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. So the, the phrase I'd like to comment on now is that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened. Why? Uh, well, they, they knew this man as the, as the lame man uh, who, it says earlier, had been lame from birth. Okay, So he's always been lame, or unable to walk, for whatever reason. He's always been this way. And, uh, and, uh, and now, through the ministrations of Peter, but of, of naturally it's not Peter. Peter has no power, but he is speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. So the power is Jesus Christ to heal and restore function. Okay? He didn't become a superhero, right? I mean, he didn't become, he couldn't leap, leap tall buildings and, you know, fly and resist bullets. He didn't become Superman. But it restored him to his uh, human functioning, right? Uh, he was always human. It, it, he was never subhuman. But he, he, he did not get to experience that kind of human functioning, which now he does. And this is a, um, a preview for all of us of the fullest restoration of our humanity in Christ, uh, especially consummated on the last day. When we will be raised and we will, what, you know, we will be like him, St. Paul says. We will be like him. And, uh, and Paul says in, in Romans 8, uh, which I'll probably refer to again a few times. In Romans 8, Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies. Okay? So that there is this bodily life that we have that is going to be the bodily life that you will know forever. Although free of all corruption, all sin, all disease, all you know, death itself. And you see, that's the other thing about disease and death. The relationship between disease and death. So God cursed Adam and Eve that they would die. Um, and then they got sick. Okay? There was no... There was no COVID in Eden, pre-fall Eden, uh, or anything like it. Um, it. It would have been a you know completely physically and spiritually in every way, uh, shalom, wholeness, and and well-being. 
and communion with God in a, in a much more uh, direct way. Um, you know, I loved that uh, our pastor, Pastor Rody, in a couple sermons ago was talking about the new creation. He talked about Eden, the pre-fall, and he, he referred to uh, Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Genesis, um, where Luther, you know, he's being poetic, um, but he, he, Luther says, well, you know, I think before the fall, Adam and Eve had, you know, great strength and that everything was magnificent and that they were able to play with bears like we play with puppies. Okay, so I mean, I don't know, but something like that. It was something like that and will be again. All right, all of creation, this is Romans 8 again, all of creation is moaning because of the curse. And we, and the creation, well, let's look at Romans 8. <laughs> well, instead of me trying to summarize it and do a bad job, uh, let's just pause and, and uh, fly over there. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and um, let's start with verse 18. And I'll, I'll, I'll read until verse 23. Okay, so Romans 8, 18 to 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, that's what I was talking about, the glorification of our glorification on the last day. Okay, uh, The glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the creation, the creation, the world of creation will, um, will, uh, in, will know, let's see, what does it say? Will, will obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God. So even the creation will obtain the glory we receive. Just as the curse of death, which was uh, directed toward humanity, affected all of creation, now you have destruction. Now you have, uh, you know, the natural world is not particularly known for being peaceful. I mean, it looks peaceful, but then when you see the living things fighting to, to, to live and eating each other, not peaceful at all. Um, you know, we have in our neighborhood a resident coyote. And he lives in the woods right next to our house. And we've heard him howl. And uh, he comes out in the evening and we see him in a certain lawn area because that's, there's, there's a lot of rabbits there in the evening. So it's like a buffet. Okay, it's a bunny buffet. He goes and eats. One time my wife saw him uh, catch a crow and eat it, or take it away to eat it. So, and that's, that's what we understand to be the natural way of things. You know, who's, who's the poet that, you know, referred to the natural world as red in tooth and claw? That, that. But it isn't ultimately the natural way. It's unnatural, if you might. Um, uh, so the, the creation will, um, verse, I'm in verse 21 still, obtain the freedom and of the glory of the children of God. Okay, 22. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The thing about child labor, uh, uh, not child labor, but uh, labor for childbirth, uh, not like children working in factories or something, <laughs> child labor, um, which is illegal. But, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the labor of a woman giving birth, we call it labor, right? It's labor, it's laborious, it, it's, it's work. And it's not, um, it's, it's, it's difficult, I, I, I'm led to understand. <laughs> and quite reliably. And, um, but, uh, but there's groaning in the labor um, together in the pains. But the thing about that is that you know there's a baby. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, it hurts, but there's going to be a baby. There's going to be a new life. So that's a sustaining hope. See, um, hope is an essential part of Christianity. Not hope in the sense of things might not work out. Like, you know, I hope the Royals win the World Series. Well, they, they might, okay, but I don't know. You know, I hope they do. So, um, no, Christian hope is a, a, a certainty, but it is future-directed. You don't hope for the things you see. You hope for the things you, you uh, know by faith to be. So the Christian life is fit, has faith, which is trust in what has been done in the past and is still being done. Okay? So, right, that's faith. Hope is wrapped up in faith, but it's, it's future. We have a future. And, um, and so hoping, knowing, looking toward the new life of the baby, uh, the, the mother endures child labor, uh, the labor of childbirth, uh, with anticipation, expectation, and, uh, and, and is sustained by that promise. And in the same way, we and all of creation can be sustained by the hope of the uh, final day, the resurrection, um, the glorification and the consummation of the new creation <laughs> on the last day. That's our Christian hope. And I, I mean, I'm going off track a little bit, but I, I do think it relates. Um, I, I, I suspect, I think that a lot of Christians today, modern Christians today, um, the hope factor is, is um, not as, as fulfilled or not as filled out as it could be. So when we think of the future, we might think of dying and going to heaven, but that ain't all there is. Okay? Um, you know, so I, I was reading an article where, where um, the author said, you know, isn't uh, um, faith in the forgiveness of sins uh, one for us in total on the cross enough? Yes, but it's not all, okay? There, there, is, this, there is the hope of, of glory that we have, okay? So Paul talks about the creation groaning inwardly, uh, eagerly awaiting the adoption of sons. Okay, no, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, verse 22, the pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23, and not only the creation, okay, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so when we talk about healings and even raising the dead, 
in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, um, the redemption of our bodies, the full consummation, which has been won in toto on the cross. It's not, a, you know, the, our, our, the, the winning and earning of our salvation is not something that's uncertain. We know it's past, but uh, it's not something we contribute to either. But the uh, uh, but uh, um, but there's also that forward-looking okay hope of the redemption of our bodies, which will include all sorts of other kinds of glorification for us as well. And okay, so Romans eight. I I believe that Romans chapter eight verses eighteen through twenty-three. I think I even mentioned this last week. Ought to be something that we read and reread uh, to get it more into our heads and, and hearts than it is. We read Romans, and there's so much, as Reformation Christians, as Lutherans, there's so much in Romans that we rightly love and value and emphasize about law and gospel, about justification, and baptism, and many, many other things. Romans is a great textbook of systematic theology. But this Romans 8 part, uh, this part of Romans 8 is, is there too. Okay, so, um, the, the idea. Now back to Acts 3, the healing of the man. In Acts 3.10, the words I said I wanted to look, uh, comment most on were when it says that the onlookers were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, again, why? Why wonder and amazement? Isn't this exactly what the Christ brought? Isn't this exactly what the meaning of of Christ bringing the kingdom of God into reality uh, should do, okay? Um, you know, these are, these, the people that are amazed are not um, godless. The people that are amazed are the people going to the temple, uh, the Jews, the, the, you know, they, they know the Old Testament. Of course, we know many, many people uh, did not understand to receive Jesus um, to be the Messiah, but um, but, it, but that is what, when, um, when we read things like Isaiah, and I t- showed you lots of passages in Isaiah last week, which talk about the, gl- the glories of the new creation. If you know these things and they're in you, um, then hearing someone speak the name of Jesus Christ, um, we should expect those kinds of things. So wonder and amazement. Why are people amazed? Um, and oh, the reason we are amazed and I would be amazed if, if this happened in, in front of me. One reason that we are amazed is because we have become used uh, to the distortion. Okay? We've been accustomed um, to the distorted thing. Uh, we think that's the way it is. Um, I went to my eye doctor a couple days ago. And uh, it had been a couple years since I'd had my prescription renewed. This isn't the new glass, aren't the new glasses. So next time you see me, maybe they'll be new. But I, I, I went and I got the prescription. And uh, we were discussing whether or not I should, so I'm getting sunglasses and then walk around glasses. And then we were discussing, should I get one of those pair that's just for looking at computer screens? Because you know I need this uh, to help me with uh, distance. I don't need it for up close, but this is in between. You know, people do that, right? Uh, you know, people will get a, a third pair or an extra pair just for the distance of the screen. We we're discussing this, and I'm right on the border of needing it. I, uh, you know, I can take off my glasses and lean in just a bit, and I'm fine. 
And, uh, but I do that for hour after hour after hour. My neck gets stiff. But I don't have to, you know, get close. And, uh, you know, I mean, so I, so I was discussing this with the doctor. And, he's, and I, what I would like is if the doctor would say, yes, you need it, or no, you don't need it. Um, you know, it was like, well, um, you know, it's up to you. I mean, it might be easier just to take off your glasses and lean in a quarter of an inch. Um, uh, but, but in our conversation, I, um, I said to him, you know, I, I, I guess that a lot of times people who come to the doc, eye doctor, and probably every doctor, people go, and um, they don't realize how bad things are. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Things might be worse than you thought. And, uh, and, and why is that? Partly because we get used to things being not great, and we think that's just the way things are. I never knew I needed glasses until I was driving along and the, my passenger could read street signs before I could. I realized, oh, well, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm not seeing as well as I did. And um, so when I said, you know, maybe is it true that people come and uh, they don't get these things or they don't get new prescriptions because they don't realize and he said, yeah, he said, absolutely. He said, sometimes people come in and, you know, how you doing? Ah, it's not that bad. I'm fine, you know. And then he tests them and says, no, actually, it's really bad. And you need a strong, and uh, so, so we don't necessarily, that's, that's my point, is we don't necessarily ha have awareness of uh, how things ought to be, <laughs> what it is to see clearly, because we're so used to the distortion that we think it's okay. Or that's just the way it is. People were amazed at the healing because they, uh, you're used to the lameness. You're used to the blindness. You're used to, to an extent, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm not trying to diminish the sufferings that people have. We, we often are quite aware that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Okay, so I don't want to overstate myself. But um, I do have an interesting quote from a uh, early church figure, Anthony the Great. Anthony the Great was a fourth century, uh, he, was a, he was an early monk. He lived out in the desert in Egypt and uh, tried to get away from the world uh, of temptation, but uh, he was so wise that, so many, that tons of multitudes of people went out to see him and ask advice. So he never really got the solitude in the way he wanted. But he was a great theologian, and Athanasius respected it. You know, there's a whole thing there. Very interesting person, Anthony the Great. We have some, some of his, uh, his sayings. One is, and I like this one, he says, a time is coming when men will go mad, and when they see someone who is not mad, they will attack him saying, you are mad, because you're not like us. Okay. So we're there, okay? We're the madmen, um, the insane ones, who when we uh, come across sanity, we think that's insanity because it's not like we are. So Jesus, who is life, is condemned to death and exchanged for a murderer, Barabbas, because he's not like us. He must be, and they even said, he has a demon, he is mad, he's a sinner, He's a Samaritan, you know, uh, whatever other invective you could launch at someone they did because he was those things. No, because he was holy and good and loving and the manifestation of God on earth. That's not like us. 
Okay. So, uh, you know, it may seem like I'm saying a lot about these, this statement, but I, I do think it is, it underlies a lot of, uh, of our, our problem and a lot of what's going on uh, when people are surprised that the coming of the Christ would bring uh, healing. And this is going to easily uh, segue me into talking about demon possession and exorcism and um, and, and how that is in the book of Acts. Because when we read, the, uh, for instance, the Gospels, there are frequent, when Jesus commissions his disciples, there's frequently three things that go together. Uh, preaching, healing, and the casting out of evil spirits. Okay, so uh, the Gospel, the absolution of the pronouncement of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the Gospel... Um, you know, in, 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 is manifested in the Gospels and Acts is manifested to be accompanied by healings and the casting out of demons and, uh, and why not still today? You know, uh, right, I, I think it does but maybe not in the same uh, amount or, or quantity or frequency. Um, so um, when Jesus come, he proclaimed the forgiveness of sins, and the, uh, he said, repent and believe the gospel. And he healed. And he cast out the demons. And he stilled the storm. And he raised the dead. These are not add-ons. It's all part of it. Okay? Here and now, and, but especially beyond. Many times now, those things are only known to us by the eyes of faith. Okay? Our life in Christ is hidden in many ways, all right? But in the Gospels, we are shown what it will be. And, and Acts is, the, I think, the same way. That's what we are to take away from, from, these, uh, from these miracles, okay? Or wonders, or as I said, signs. The fact that they're called signs tells us that they are not the thing themselves. They point to something, which is the greater kingdom, the, the kingdom of God. Now, um, I'm going, there are a couple, uh, there are, there's, as far as I can tell, there are two more um, uh, elaborate or detailed stories of exorcism in the book of Acts, and there are several other references to the casting out of unclean spirits here or there. And um, uh, one of them, I'll, I'll talk about each of them in, in turn. So, um, if you want to put bookmarks had um, Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 19. And uh, both of these are quite wonderful stories. Uh, true, true stories, but quite, quite wonderful uh, narrations that um, I think you will, you will enjoy them if you have not heard them or heard them lately. So Acts 16 is where we'll get to. Acts 16 Acts 19. Um, all right. Uh, to talk about... To, to talk about evil spirits and exorcism, unclean spirits, demons, the devil, um, a bit of definition is required. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote his wonderful book, The Screwtape Letters. If you've not read it, it'd be something to add to your library. C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters, in which he does a, a, a kind of a fanciful, obviously fictional, series of letters back and forth between a more uh, experienced demon and a novice demon. And the experienced demon is writing letters to the novice demon, giving him tips for how to destroy the soul 
of the man he's been assigned to. And it's, you know, it's quite clever. It's quite a clever book. And I think you can learn a lot about the nature of temptation, the nature of evil, the nature of the devil's strategies, and our, and our divine promise of victory from that book. It's quite, quite nice the way, the way he does that. Well, in the preface, he says this, a little quote. It's famous, so you may have heard it. In the preface, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. All right, we see both. Uh, he says, they themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Okay, so uh, an occultist or uh, a materialist, you know, they're, they're, they're quite happy if they can get you in one or the other. All right, uh, so equal and opposite errors. Uh, so we don't want to fall in those. We don't want to disbelieve, but we also don't want to become so fascinated that that, that becomes a, a major part of our faith. Angels, of which demons are a classification. They're fallen angels. Angels are not sort of the central doctrine of the Bible. But they are there. And they are, it is an angelology, if you want, is a doctrine of Christianity. Okay? It's not a major, you know, central one that we have to talk about every day. But uh, it's actually why I, another reason why I, I quite like the traditional church calendar because um, uh, September 29th is St. Michael and All Angels Day. And if you observe it, which, which I like to do, um, it's, uh, you talk about angels at least one day out of the year. Okay. And uh, just to remind us not to pray to them, not to worship them. They don't want that. Uh, <laughs> the angels don't want us to pray to them or, or worship. They, want, they point to Jesus. Okay, so angels um, are uh, uh, angels are a, a creature. They are created by God, and uh, but they're not former humans. When you die, you don't become an angel. And angels didn't once live as humans. That's not what happens. They, they, it would be a demotion for a human being to become an angel. We are in the likeness of God. Um, they exist. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about the origin of Satan, the devil, and his minions, the demons, unclean spirits, evil spirits. The Bible doesn't give us tons of information which we would love to have uh, because we're curious and which people have throughout the centuries speculated on and uh, thought a lot about and written about. And, but the existence of those things is unquestioned by the New Testament. Unquestioned. Okay. That these evil spirits exist, that they, um, and of course, nothing exists which God has not made. So God doesn't make evil, but, uh, but they, obviously then, were not always evil. Okay, so we can, we, can, we can figure out at least that much. These are created as good beings who have fallen like man felt. They have fallen um, and uh, in some way, presumably before Adam and Eve, because it's the serpent who tempts them. Um, if you read much about this sort of thing, um, there are Christians who will point to some Old Testament passages that 
uh, about, like I think it's Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. We're not going to look them up, but if you want to later, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. There are bits in there that people will often say, oh, that's talking about the devil because it uses the word Lucifer. Okay, um, but, uh, but that translation is, is, is probably not the best translation. It's really a better translation to be Morning Star. But, so it's questionable, at least in the minds of some, whether those passages are actually about the devil. And, uh, you know, they might be about an evil king. All right, so I'm not going to dwell on those. Um, uh, you read them and kind of work that out. But, uh, but from the New Testament, we know this exists. Okay. What is the devil's, um, what, what can we say about the devil? Why? why? Okay, why be the devil? And, um, well, the word devil and the word Satan mean the same thing. Okay, uh, and they mean accuser or adversary, but adversarial in the sense of um, an you know uh, courts are adversarial, right? You go to court; it's not because you love one another. You go to court because there's an adversarial. You've got somebody accusing you of some crime for which you will either be pronounced guilty or or acquitted. Okay. So when the Bible speaks of the devil or Satan, he is the, that's what those words mean, accuser, adversary. Okay. Um, this is an interesting tidbit. You know, the, the, the very ancient um, baptismal ceremony, or rite, the very ancient baptismal rite, which we still use, portions of which we still use, include um, a denunciation of the devil, right? Uh, many times you've seen or heard this in, in a baptism. And it's, you know, the, the, the pastor asks the candidate, um, you know, Scott, do you renounce the devil? There's always three questions. Do you renounce the devil? Yes, I renounce him. Do you renounce all his ways? Yes, I renounce them. And uh, all his works? Yes. And do you renounce all his ways? Yes, I renounce them. The... Uh, the uh, Anglican Book of Common Prayer is, is much more beautifully worded. You know, it talks about the pomp and you know something, something. It's kind of, kind of more. But we talk about the works and the ways of the devil. We renounce them. Um, in the ancient baptism rite, the candidate would then spit, uh, you know, to despise the devil. Luther talks a lot about that himself. Uh, Luther talks a lot about, you know, one of the best ways to deal with the devil is to despise him. <laughs> And, um, and uh, uh, interestingly, um, and forgive me if I've told this story to you, but interest, I think it's interesting enough to repeat. In, uh, in Berlin, Germany, there's a Lutheran pastor there, Gottfried Martins, who, uh, whose congregation has a lot of Muslim converts, I mean hundreds, um, uh, from Iran, Persian. And, um, and so he's had many, many baptisms, these people that have, so you know, you have a, a church uh, full of old Germans, not even full, a few old Germans, okay? Now, I, I know what old Germans are like. <laughs> we don't like change. But then you get tons of these new converts that come in, converts to Christianity with what great joy, these new Christians. And uh, this even made the news. I, I, you know, you can watch, look for on YouTube for a BBC story about him. 
And, um, but he added a question to those renunciations. Do you renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways? And do you renounce Islam? Okay. So, uh, and yes, I, I, I renounce Islam. You know, this is very fitting. I don't think we should get in the habit of adding a bunch of things to that. But in his case, I think that was very pastoral uh, for him to do that. Okay. So, um, and we also, um, uh, see if I, if, I, if I still have it somewhere in here. I don't know if I still do. I'm going to look in my notes. Um, I may have deleted this somewhere. Oh, no. All right. So, a couple of weeks ago, we sang the hymn from our hymnal, LSB 594, God's Own Child, I Gladly Say It, which is uh, it's really a fun hymn to sing. It's got a nice tune. People like it. It's a crowd pleaser. And... Uh, <laughs> It, it's great for baptisms. Um, I've seen it done where a ch children's choir might sing it at a baptism. or It's great for baptism because that's what it's about, right? That's what it's about. I am baptized into Christ is the, uh, is the refrain. Stanza three, okay, says this. Satan, hear this proclamation. I am baptized into Christ. Drop your ugly accusation. I am not so soon enticed. Now that to the font I've traveled, all your might has come unraveled, and against your tyranny, God my Lord unites with me. I just really love that. And that is there be because of the practice we have, the custom of, of the renunciation of the devil. That's what this person's doing in this hymn. Um, I'm renouncing you, but specifically it says drop your accusations. We're just going to come against that again and again when we talk about the devil. And I am going to talk about the, the exorcism, not the circumcision, the exorcism. But I, I really believe there's merit to laying good context. What is it to uh, cast out the devil if we don't know much about the devil? Um, so, so there's a lot for us to, a uh, lot for us to say. Okay. Uh, let's see, where should I, where, where, where do I want to go with this? Um, okay, baptism right. Now, uh, I'm going to use a phrase now that I'll use several times that may be, that Lutherans don't use a lot. And the phrase is spiritual warfare. Okay. You don't have to be a Pentecostal to use that word. I don't think. Now, there are definitely people that think of spiritual warfare in a way that is unbalanced and unscriptural. But I don't mean that. <laughs> um, you know, spiritual warfare or some, some if you want to use, I mean, even the word warfare can be misunderstood um, because we're not in the offense, strictly speaking. Okay. Um, but I will, I will defend my use of the word warfare here with two passages and probably others later. But 1 Timothy 6, 12, where Paul tells this new pastor, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Okay, so there is a fight that is occurring. Okay, lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The next one is 1 Timothy uh, 1, uh, 18 and 19. 
and uh, he says, you may wage the good warfare. So very similar, same book, very similar, fight the good fight, uh, wage a good warfare. Here he says it, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, um, Paul says that because that is the, that is the battleground, uh, the primary battleground of the devil against you. Is against your faith and your conscience. Okay, that's uh, of course he he'll get to that by all sorts of mischief and harm against you, uh, including physical. Okay, but uh, but the 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 ultimate target for him is your is the faith and your conscience, your good, clean, clear conscience. All right. Now, I, I, I think that that is very important when we go back to recall that the words Satan and devil mean accuser or court adversary, okay? It is the work of the devil to condemn you of your sins, to remind you incessantly of your trespasses against the law of God. The devil is very familiar with God's law, and he uses it. Now, God's law does convict us of sin, and appropriately. I mean, as the, as the right godly uh, use of the law, you know, in, in, in a central respect, that we might be convicted of our sins and therefore lean on Christ, find hope in Him. But if it is, if it is incessant, if it is ongoing, if you've been... Uh, the gospel's been pronounced to you over and over, which it should be, and you'll need it. You know, as Luther says, I need to hear the gospel every day because I forget it every day. But there's still, um, there are still times when we still, when we still continue uh, with a tremendous burden of, of which, we, uh, which has been lifted. And that is why. That is in part the result of the work of the devil. So when your sins have been pronounced clean and you continue to be burdened by them, that is, that is probably the devil, the accuser. How can you be a Christian? How can you be saved? Look at you. You, you should be condemned forever. Look at you. When you believe that, okay, you're listening to lies. The devil is a liar. As Jesus says in John 8, he is a liar. He is the father of lies. And when he lies, he's speaking his native language. Jesus had a bit of humor there. Yeah, that's a good turn of phrase. He's a liar. What's his lie? Okay. That's, that's going to be a very important part of it. Um, uh, while I'm at it, let me just see if I can find... Um, find, uh, okay, so here's a Luther quote, okay? Um, we don't, we don't, uh, we know Luther has his many flaws, but, uh, but I like this quote. I like many of his quotes. I like this one a lot. It's a little long, so, but I think it's dramatic enough you'll like it. Uh, quote from Martin Luther. Um, the devil, you know, he says something about when I wake up in the morning, the devil is there, and the devil says to me, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. To which Luther would respond, Well, 
Yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if I care to give you my, uh, uh, than that, and if you care, I can give you a fuller list. I can no doubt add to it and help make it more complete. Okay, so, but you know what? He says, but you know what? Uh, my Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mention, <laughs> those I could add, and indeed, those I have committed, but am so wicked that I'm un unaware of having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them, his blood is sufficient, and on the day of judgment I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sin on himself and clothed me in his perfect righteousness. That's how you scorn the devil. That's how you scorn the devil. Okay? Um, yes, uh, I am a sinner. The gospel. Christ has died for me. Okay? Uh, the, the devil cannot stand the gospel, cannot stand the name of Christ, cannot stand the gospel. This is a way to battle. This is what I mean when I say spiritual warfare. To fight the good fight. And I'll go back to Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he says, wage the good warfare. How? Holding faith and a good conscience. Okay, hold on to that good conscience. It's not psychobabble. It's not power positive thinking. Okay, it's reminding yourself and dwelling in and asserting and confessing that you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and you will be exonerated. Okay, that's what it is to hold a good conscience. All right, so that's spiritual warfare. That's a big part of what we mean about spiritual warfare. All right, um, looking at the old clock on the wall. Let me, let, uh, let, let's at least look for a moment at, um, at uh, one of my key passages here. And I really want to get to Acts 19. Let's do that first, and I'll do Acts 16 next week. So Acts 19, 11 to 20, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the more uh, remarkable and even a little bit amusing stories. Acts chapter 19, verse, starting with verse 11. Um, there's actually not an exorcism here, but you'll get why I'm pointing out. Um, verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. All right. Handkerchiefs that touched his skin could be taken to people, and they'd be healed. That sounds a little bit like, uh, like the superstition around relics. You know, that this, this object. Okay. Um, I think that's why Luke says, God was doing extraordinary miracles. Okay, it's not an ordinary miracle. <laughs> this is extra so I think even Luke knows this is, this is unusual. But there is precedent. The the woman with the hemorrhage touched the clo or the the hem of Jesus' clothing. Okay, you know it, there is some precedent for for the power of God in Christ being associated with materiality. All right, so I don't want to dwell on that. I actually don't think there's a whole lot we can say. Um, but it is kind of curious. Okay, verse 13. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all seven of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Okay, a lot to say. First of all, I think this is the only passage in the Bible where the word exorcist occurs. So even though I've been seeing exorcism, exorcist, exorcists, whatever, and it probably is a fine word to use, it isn't really the word that is used of the Christians. Okay, it, the, the only, I think, I, I, I believe, I checked, and I think the o this is the only time the word exorcist is used, and it's not used of Christians. Alright, so it, it might not be the best word. Uh, the Bible does talk about casting out demons, cleansing people of unclean spirits, um, expelling demons, and deliverance. Okay, the Bible would use those kind of words. But, exorcism is so commonly understood that it might be, I might lapse into using it. They had no authority to speak in the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus is not a magic formula. They said, you know, by, by Jesus, whom Paul, they, they do, because they are not anointed with the Holy Spirit, because they are not uh, united to Christ, they cannot speak for Christ. So they don't have any authority. The devil knows it and says, I know Jesus. I like that, actually. It's kind of interesting. I've met Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, and Paul, I've heard about him. You, you don't have any authority here. And uh, so the one man tackles seven, seven others, beats them up, wounds them, strips them naked. They run away. You know, in, in, the, in, in, in Jewish culture of the time, public nakedness was, I mean, you and I would be very embarrassed to be attacked and stripped naked and to run away wounded. Okay. It'd be humiliating. <laughs> but there's a shame attached to it in, in this period in Judaism that uh, I think is significant. So the, the, the demon could have wounded them and, and sent them off. But he wounded them and stripped them naked and they ran. And you also notice, uh, it's not in here, but you know the story of Jesus uh, cleansing the Gadarene demoniac. You know, it's the bit with the sending the demons into the swine, which then go drown themselves. Um, he's naked. He's walking around naked in the tombs, breaking chains. <laughs> um, and, uh, and Jesus heals him and sends the demons away. You know the story. We may look at it, but, uh, but he's naked. Okay, so the public naked. When Jesus was hung on the cross, they stripped him naked. Okay, there's, there's meaning in that. It's not just... Um, somewhat cruel. It's, you know, Greeks and Romans, public nakedness didn't mean anything. It wasn't that big a deal. But for the Jews it was. It was very shameful. So to be shamed, to, 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 make, you, to, to make you feel worthless, or that there's something dirty or polluted, okay. So that, that's what the nakedness could indicate here. Alright. Um, now, I, uh, I, I'm running out of time, but preview of next week. Um, we, we may talk about this some more, but we'll look at Acts chapter 16, which is uh, a young girl 
who's possessed, who is telling people's fortunes, and, and Paul does uh, expel the demon from her. Um, okay, so uh, God's blessings. God bless your worship today. Thank you for your attention. We'll see you next week.